I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Adam Arazi. Adam is a 30-year-old traveler, dog father, and son. I've known Adam for almost a decade, and we've traveled, and we've both changed dramatically over this time. Shockingly, his father died unexpectedly 10 days after recording this interview back in November 2018. During this conversation, we discuss his existential confusion, why he may expatriate to the Philippines, and why he intentionally does not think about sudden death. Before we talk more about Adam in this really great conversation, I want to talk about my long-form Sundays posts. These are my weekly reflections on medical education, and I actually recently just finished up the medical school part of things. Um, so on May 12th, 2019, I published On the Final Week, or Graduation, a post-mortem. This week, I reflected on the final week of medical school, graduation. All-day courses like intern year boot camp and ACLS, plus a surprise birthday party and a canceled dinner. So much in one week, especially one that caps off four years of schooling. Then more recently, on May 19th, 2019, I published On the End of an Era, or Fourth Year, a Postmortem. This week, I reflected on the past year. So much growth and change. I went from studying for Step 2 CK with a pregnant partner to interviewing with only one program for residency to matching with my home institution. Now, mid-move, I look back on the past year's clinical rotations and what I have taken away from these experiences. So you can find all of my written work for the past four years of medical school and the first year of, uh, quote, residency. Uh, I, I say quote just because I haven't actually started residency. I'm just still moving. Uh, you can find all that stuff at uh, www.eugenehkim. That's me, eugenehkim. Um, and uh, you can also look on Amazon for the collected works for each year if you like them, um, you know, in a in a format that you prefer, either ebook like on a Kindle, or either paperback uh, edition on uh, that you can order uh, at cost. Uh, you search for physician education, and it'll come up. It'll be these cool covers and different like kind of rainbow colors. In, uh, called uh, On the Education of a Physician. And I'm planning to continue this project for the next four years of residency, and I hope that you are all on board. So let's return to Adam. So this, uh, so this interview, uh, it was done on November 6th, 2018, and his father would, as I mentioned earlier, would die unexpectedly on uh, the 16th of November, 10 days later, uh, 2018. And so this was an interview that initially when I was, we were scheduling it and Adam and I, you know, we've known each other for a really long time and we've really wanted to sit down and have an interview. I initially was kind of like, oh, let's just delay it. Cause it was kind of like during a wacky time during, uh, like as we were preparing for Junsu, the sun to arrive and, um, just kind of like, I was like, oh, I'm not really feeling it. And Adam was about to head out, head out to Mexico for a trip with his, uh, with his spouse and, uh, was just like, maybe we should do this. And so we did it. I'm really glad that we did and we didn't delay because as I mentioned, 10 days later, this really, um, profound life change would happen of the ex unexpected death of his father. And that is something, and, and I've been, you know, in close contact with Adam and seen him physically a few times. And it's been really interesting to track the changes uh, within him as he's processed the death of his father. And the reason why I, I kind of focus in on this is because this interview that I had with Adam was really great. Um, however, it was very cerebral. There was a lot of talking about his beliefs, but there were very few instances that he could point to, you know, stories or, or, or just, you know, 
you know, stories or experiences that he could point to, which show how his beliefs had been tested and uh, vetted by life. And I think this, the death of his father is going to be, you know, I'm planning on interviewing him in the, you know, in the coming months, um, which will make it about a year between the death and between the first interview and the second interview. But I think a lot of life has happened in between the two of those interviews. Um, but when that happens, you'll, you'll, you audience will be the first to hear about it. I promise. Um, and I really liked this conversation. There were some points, you know, listening to it, uh, especially with like six, seven months of, of, uh, of perspective on, on the conversation that I could tell that I was driving f towards something. Um, but I don't think that he could, he was quite ready to go to those places, um, or to really think about these thoughts. And, uh, at one point I really drive into this idea about like, uh, you know, you want to retire, but you want to save your ability to pursue passions deeply for that distant future, rather than kind of allowing yourself to pursue those passions deeply now. And I think that something like the death of your father will kind of really reframe your perspective on the matter. And I think that when we sit down again, that you'll hear a difference in that in that part of the conversation, as well as the he very explicitly states a few times just uh, the, the the health of his father, the health of his mother, and his the the importance of their decline in health to reinvigorating his relationship with both of them. And he also talks a few times about specifically avoiding thinking about sudden death because it is something that gives him great existential angst and and, and anxiety. And I was just like listening to it now. I'm just like, oh, son, that is coming for you. <laughs> It's really great. It was, um, you know, like with Alana, uh, when I interviewed her uh, before her car crash, it was uh, a few months beforehand. So it was like, you know, it was probably pretty close to what she was thinking during. But I think for Adam, just for it to be so close to that day when he, when he found out that his father died, I think that's just a really great treasure. And I think that being able to show the um, progression and the time it takes to really move on from something like that. And I don't even want to use the word move on. I think just, just to process and integrate and move forward. Um, that's a challenge. And I think that it, you know, it takes a lot, it takes months, it takes years. Um, and that depends severely on when, when does the death occur? How does the death occur? And where are you when the death happens? Um, yeah, it's just something that I really think is, uh, this is a really great conversation. We get into some real, I, I drill into some very specific um, ideas that he has about how he wants to die uh, when we get to the when I die I want prompt. And uh, eventually I drill, I, I drill and um, I get to a point where we really talk about some interesting things that aren't interesting in the context necessarily of just this conversation, but within the global context of his dad died in 10 days, um, 10 days after that conversation. So we really, I, I'm, you know, some, you, you'll hear it. I think you'll hear it. And uh, there's just some really interesting bits of this conversation that I really, really enjoyed that he was vulnerable to talk about, such as um, um, some of his history with mental health and his uh, panic attacks, secondary to his existential confusion. Um, some things like uh, his 
difficulty with self-image and uh, his his body image, um, and how that has driven his uh, been a major driver of his uh, physical movement journey. And uh, these are things that are tough to talk about, especially you know for anybody, but especially for a, a, a dude. You know, it's, it can be tough to talk about those things. And I'm really glad that he was able to open up like that. And I'm really looking forward to when he opens up for this follow up conversation. So anyway, I hope that you have uh, been, your appetite has been uh, sufficiently whetted for this great conversation with Adam Arazi on death. It is November 6th, 2018. I'm sitting here in my Coopersburg home and Adam Arazi is sitting in his East Boston home uh, in Massachusetts and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Adam, what are the four prompts? I am. Before I die, I want. When I die, I want. After I die, I want. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? I am evolving. Um, I am a very, very different person today than from the moment I met you, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> um, in a variety of different ways, uh, not only physically from my physique to my facial hair manifestations to everything in between, but emotionally I have changed a lot. Um, in the wise words of my good buddy, Alex Minot, I have went from a Ferrari to a Subaru in a <laughs> matter of years, and I am proud of that. <laughs> as long as you consider it one of the Subarus that's pretty speedy and feisty on the road and not the, you know, the hatchback one that all the families drive. Um, <laughs> I am evolving also in the sense of my hobbies. Um, as my memory goes back, my, my concrete memory goes back to maybe high school. Um, mm -hmm. Before that, it's a little bit fuzzy. But in high school, I didn't really give a shit about anything. I was largely getting by successfully based on my intelligence, uh, even though I really didn't work very hard at anything. I was on the soccer team, but I didn't work out. I was doing well in school, but I didn't study. Um, all those kind of things. And I've put a lot more effort in my life to like learn things and do good, um, whether that's growing in myself or learning hobbies such as baking, which I've become really fond of. And I mm -hmm. treat it as like a social activity as well as a mindfulness activity. It's kind of like a mental yoga for me. Um, everything to rekindling my athletic pursuits and kind of joining a serious soccer team in this past year, which kind of harkens back to high school, um, but also it's a more mature team as well. I'm doing it to kind of, I'm playing soccer to see how much I've grown in the gym as opposed to previously when I was playing soccer, just because it was there and I felt like it. Um, mm -hmm. I, in a more practical sense, I am a husband. I am a son. I am a, father kind of to a dog I'm a caretaker i'm an alpha male um i'm also very vulnerable especially to my wife um and i am definitely confused i think that's one of the better adjectives to describe me always i think that part of my evolution is due to my confusion where i don't really know the next day the next steps to take sometimes so i'll just be like oh i'll try this and like kind of see if it works mm -hmm. so, uh, you know pick a card out of a deck and just like go for it um i've done that a lot with my employment previous uh, prior to my current job um just like whatever sticks i'll take um and i've also done that kind of in terms of like my health where i wasn't really concerned about it until more recently where i just did whatever felt right uh, without much rhyme or reason behind it mm -hmm. um this whole interview is gonna be interesting because one of the most confusing things to me is death um it's something that i have chosen to not think about strategically uh, <laughs> because it causes me to not focus on 
what I consider the more important uh, yin of this yang is life, mm -hmm. um, which I do try to focus on a lot. Uh, I try to focus on experiences that will make me fulfilled for that day when I eventually do die and I can be on my deathbed saying, wow, I did a lot of cool shit. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of good memories and thumbs up. I did a good job. Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think the, the one question that I was developing as you were talking, but you sort of answered it, um, was like, you know, with this evolution, it requires a stressor to cause the growth and to cause, like, you need that stimulus to, uh, get things moving along. And it sounds like that confusion is the stimulus. And, um, I think before we kind of dive into the, the, you know, the branches of how you've evolved and how this, this uh, confusion guides you and kind of pushes you along the way, I think uh, we, we should talk a little bit about like the confusion itself. Like what, um, what are you confused about? Like what, uh, what comes to mind? I am confused about what it means to be a unique person in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, I, am, I took a class at Tufts called Free Will, and it was led by Professor Daniel Dennett, uh, mm -hmm. who you may or may not know. He's one of the four horsemen of atheism. And essentially, over the course of the semester, I was reduced to believing that I truly didn't have any say over what goes on in my life. And I was just a product of society and a product of those around me. And I just react based on how I fit into all these little puzzles in the world. Um, mm -hmm. Honestly, it affected me greatly because I recall thinking that like my partying personality was not who I really wanted to be. It was just the situations that I found myself in and what I felt appropriate doing at that time. Um, maybe it even transpires today. Like maybe I'm not really a baker. Maybe I'm just a baker because Kate likes eating sweets and <laughs> I also have a sweet tooth. Like maybe that's not what I actually want to be doing, but it's mm -hmm. what I've fallen into. Mm -hmm. Um, that manifests itself in a variety of areas in my life, especially as I travel, which I like to do extensively. And I go to a country like India, or I go to a country like the Philippines, and I see people who, for lack of a better term, seem more fulfilled than I am, and arguably happier than I am, while doing wildly different stuff, making a wildly different income, and having different social norms than I could ever imagine. And it gets me thinking, like, if you were to take me right now, all my genetics, all my little ins and outs, wipe my brain clean and drop me as a 30 year old male in Pakistan, would I be in the same emotional state that I am now? If you just gave me like a whole new upbringing um, or have, or have I really been that strongly influenced by the people around me? Um, I feel like I'm a, a lot of times just a product of who I surround myself with, whether it be my mom, my dad by default or Kate or my dog or all of you guys, all my friends. I feel like I've just molded myself to fit a lot of other people's whims and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, if that was unclear, I can try to say it better. I kind of feel like I am a puzzle piece that was molded by the pieces around me, as opposed to being a unique puzzle piece that caused others around me to mold themselves. Mm. Um, and I think it's, I mean, it's one thing to mention is that I believe you had the major philosophy at, at, at uh, college, right? And so like, that's, that kind of like paints a lot of these, uh, these more almost like formal arguments or discussions about it. Um, and it's a very good, so, so have you, do you feel like you've transitioned? Do you still feel like you are the puzzle piece that is molded? Or do you feel like the unique puzzle piece that is molding? I've been trying to make efforts to be more molding. Um, mm -hmm. 
but in the end, I feel at this point, I am happy being molded. Um, I, whether it's the more physical sense of like serotonin being released to me, like I do have a great joy in my life. And a lot of that is due to the people I surround myself with. So I don't, I wouldn't want to do anything to break relationships or change the relationships I have even because I do find a lot of them to be really positive. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether it's a relationship with all my friends or with Kate um, or even with my parents at times, uh, they're largely positive relationships, obviously with some negativity in them. But I think that only serves to show how enjoyable the positivity is. There has to be negative to have positive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't feel the need to make myself more of a strong molder than I currently am. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that I've, for better or for worse, I've like resigned myself to a point where I am in a good place in terms of molded versus molding. Mm-hmm. And is that, I mean, is, and then is that the being okay with no longer being, being the Mustang now being the Subaru? <laughs> Largely. Yes. When I was, and I think that's also a byproduct of the people I was around. Um, mm-hmm. When I was the, when I was the Mustang or the Ferrari, as mine, I would say, mm-hmm. um, I was in a fraternity. I was 18 to 23 years old. I was abusing a lot of drugs worse than you could ever imagine. And it resulted in a, in an atom that was just going a million miles a minute and never took time to rest, never took time to think. Um, I was either going hard or going zero. Mm-hmm. And now I found that I can kind of like cruise at 50 and be really good and like kind of pump up the gas a bit sometimes and reel back some other times. But I think as you've probably seen, I rarely hit 100 miles an hour anymore. Um, but also proudly, I feel like I never come to like a full stop. Um, when, when going back to confusion aspect, like the confusion, it serves as a spurn to help me go on to that next thing. Um, but it's also served as a huge uh, roadblock in my life. I think as you guys saw in Florida when we were on that little vacation, mm-hmm. um, I was in a very confused state in terms of my job. And it resulted in panic attacks, which have been unfortunately common in the past 30 years of my life, uh, specifically between years 20 and 27. Mm -hmm. Um, They've since kind of fallen by the wayside, I think, partially because I'm have really I've stably mold I've stably allowed myself to be molded by these things around me. And I have all these good networks of people that I've worked on. So if one of these aspects of my life becomes out of line, I have a lot I can fall back on now or I hadn't really cultivated those relationships previously because I was moving too fast to do so. Mm -hmm. I wonder if uh, that transition to, you know, away from the, the, the panic attacks in the Ferrari is a question of like acknowledging the fact that you are being molded by the people around you. And rather than mindlessly accepting the molding that's going on to you, you're like, okay, now let me put this in place, these things in place, so that when I do get molded, I'm molded in a way that I agree with. And I've, I'm aligned with that. And part of what I've done, at least specifically to mold myself is more physical. Um, mm-hmm. I have taken a new interest in my body and mental health. And regardless, I, I, I mold myself with that. Uh, no one's doing that for me. No one's telling me to do that. Um, if I wanted to sit here on the couch and drink beer all day, Kate would still love me and be my wife. It's, there's nothing stopping me from doing that, really, um, except for my own, my own motivation inside me to mm-hmm. try to better myself in that way. Um, so that I've kind of used that and allowed my focus on my body to transition me to a more molder, um, mm-hmm. especially as it pertains to my relationship with Kate. 
um, as it pertains to my relationship with you guys, um, my relationship with my parents. Um, a lot of it has been, a lot of it recently has been based on a newfound joy of being physically fit and trying to tell others to do activities with me that are based on physical fitness, whether it's yin yoga with Kate or hikes with my mom or whatever it might be. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's been me trying to exercise that and become more of the molder. Um, I'm proud to say like in a lot of ways it has worked. Like my mom and I, although we don't always get along, we do both have a newfound passion for physical fitness. Uh, me in my 30s, her in her now 70s. Um, we've manifested it in different ways, but it's something that we now can both connect on. And I'm happy to know it's something that we may have both kind of gotten to individually as opposed to molding each other to do it. Uh, we kind of found our niche in very different ways there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and respecting the differences in the ways that you will express yourself physically is an important thing to do. It's like, yeah, I want, I mean, there was a phase where I was like, I want everyone to do CrossFit because that's what I like. And now, now that I get older, I'm realizing like, it's good for some people. You know? Exactly. And I like going to the gym because it makes me feel good. I like playing soccer because it makes me feel good. But I don't expect my mom to go to the gym. I don't expect her to play soccer. She has two fake hips and a fake knee. For her, a eight mile hike is probably more than I could ever imagine doing at her age with her body. So, mm -hmm. um, what has the journey with your physical fitness and with your body in the more abstract been like? In the more abstract, it was a self image kind of situation I was going through. Um, when we were living together back in 2009 in Andrew Square, and we were rowing a lot in the house, mm -hmm. um, that was probably my peak physical condition of my entire life, uh, partially because of our diets, partially because of how much we're working out and the lifestyle we're living, my metabolism, all of that resulted in the pretty peak Adam. Mm -hmm. uh, I recall those days fondly in some ways, and I almost yearned to be back there so I could truly see what peak Adam would have been. Um, I know that one of my biggest regrets in life, and we'll get to this in the later prompts, one of my biggest regrets in life is that I never did peak physically. And I likely never will, considering that the peak man is probably in between 18 and 27. You could probably tell me more than I can. But realistically, I'm on the wrong side of 30. So peaking physically is not what it would have been if I was 25 and having this newfound joy of working out. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I try not to let that be a demotivator. I try to instead let that allow me to focus on being a peak 50 year old man when the time comes mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to looking back on what could have been um so the, in the abstract sense there's a self-image and it is a self-image issue uh to give you some more like numbers behind it my peak my high weight was about 210 pounds mm -hmm. and i was a i was a husky guy i don't know if you guys really saw it that much uh, it was probably during a festival season time um or i was unhappy even like with my shirt off in public places at some times, because I felt a little bit, a little bit pudgy, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, I've lost 35 pounds since then. And Congratulations. thank you. Um, it's been noticeable, but I still have this like self image issue where I, it, it, you hear like stories about people who like pick the little pieces of like fat on their body and be like, that's the piece I have to get rid of, or they see like a wrinkle on their face and they can't take it because that wrinkle is there. I have that in a lot of ways. So I don't think I'll ever be satisfied, but mm -hmm. part of me likes that. Part of me feels that I don't want to ever be satisfied with my physical condition because that is when I will stop my focus on my physical condition, mm -hmm. if that makes sense in like a roundabout way. Um, mm -hmm. It's not a destructive lack of satisfaction. Uh, I think it's actually a positive lack of satisfaction. 
if I see a piece of fat on my stomach, I'm not going to go not take my shirt off on the beach. I'm instead going to be like, oh, that's there. I need to work out more or I should do this exercise instead, or I should change my routine, or I should stop eating a pound of ground beef for dinner and thinking that's healthy, whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of a mindset of a younger man in there. Um, also, there's, there are elements of, uh, of an older man in there understanding the aging process, especially you know, when you have the perspective of your mother uh, kind of mixed in there. And so it's very interesting. I see the two of them overlapping at this point. And especially when you start talking about like a peak fitness, Adam, like, uh, there's a, yes, you could have peaked. Um, but also at what cost down the line, you know, like if you try to peak when you, you like really hit your full 100% potential, does that distract, does that detract from your later wellness and physical well-being? Uh, which is an interesting question. And so like, if you had peaked in your 20s, would you able be able to be as healthy in your 50s or 60s, which is, is you know, it's just a, that kind of question. And so like, when you when you talk about like the, the peak, um, it's very much like the the young man's like, uh, like a dick measuring <laughs> kind of like, how, how big, strong and fast could I have been? Um, but you'll never know. And when you compare yourself to that, it's a very, it can be uh it, it's a it's an interesting thought experiment it is and the fact that you brought my parents into it is i think wonderful at this stage because one of my one of the reasons why i'm motivated to be physically fit is because i don't want to end up in the states that they're in respectively mm -hmm. um, neither of my my mom and my dad neglected physical fitness from as far as i know the day i was born until very recently mm -hmm. um, and as a result it had com it had health problems which we can go into now or later um, neither of them are in the best physical shape right now. And it's, I think partially for both of them due to their neglection, their bodies, whether it was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or drinking or never thinking about the gym, it was obviously a different era back then in the, let's say in, in between the sixties and the nineties when they were really in their peaks. Um, we live in a different era today where physical fitness, I think is more on the forefront than it ever has been in history. And maybe rightfully so with the new knowledge that we have about how humans live and what they need to do to live a long life. Um, so yes, yeah, so the, the, my parents are a motivator for me in that regard. Um, I don't want to have to have hip replacements when I'm older. I don't want to have to, you know, struggle to get out of bed and fall down when I get out of bed because my balance is so poor or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot there, and we can talk about it now. But I think that there's uh, some other stuff that I want to dig into first before we get to that, you know, main course of uh, the parents. Dig me into a deep hole, Eugene. I know you know how better than everyone else. <laughs> how do you, did you have a religious or spiritual upbringing to your childhood? I did. Um, it was a somewhat of a forced religious upbringing. Um, my mother, my father was Israeli, uh, born and raised, served, served in the Israeli army. He moved here when he was in his mid-20s, um, met my mother in his 30s, um, and they got married shortly after, had me really late. Uh, my parents are very old for me. Uh, my mm -hmm. mom, she was 40 years old when she had me, and my dad was 37. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was like their last ditch at a positive thing. Uh, my mom always tells me that she thinks that the reason I was born is because she went to Israel and left a note to God in the Western Wailing Wall. Um, it's a wall in Israel where a lot of the Orthodox Jews go. It's a very holy place. And mm -hmm. the, the tradition is to write a little wish on a piece of paper and put it into a crack in the wall. And then that wish is given to God. So she believes that that's why I was born. And so I think as a result of my birth, she became very religious. Mm. Um, 
and I was brought up extremely Jewish, uh, celebrating all the holidays. We were going to temple for all the major holidays. I went to Hebrew school two days a week in between ages of like six and 13. Uh, then I then I got bar mitzvah at 13. Um, I continued with Hebrew school on weekends um, from 13 to 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was essentially I had a really strong Jewish education growing up. Um, I even was considered myself Jewish a little bit during college, especially in the first year or two. Um, I went to services at Hillel. I hung out with a pretty Jewish crowd. I joined a Jewish fraternity, all that kind of stuff. And then philosophy really started to get a hold of me, mm-hmm. and it shattered everything that I thought I believed in, although I don't know how much of it was truly me and how much of it was my mom and my dad impressing it upon me. Um, So the philosophy major kind of opened my eyes to how much I had a distaste for religion. And Mm -hmm. there was no looking back since then. I don't think I've been in temple for at least my own, for my own volition in 10 years, um, aside from weddings and funerals and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom and dad still identify as Jewish, but they also haven't been to temple in a long amount of time so it seems to have been something that was done for me as an upbringing measure but not something that stuck with anyone in it it was used as a tool to bring up a child in what was deemed to be the right way Mm -hmm. and i do think that judaism teaches a lot of good things about upbringing and education and i I think it was a good thing i don't look back negatively upon it i think it molded me into a good person and and hopefully a person of good intellect um but now that i have those traits that it gave me i there's no need to continue with it Mm. Um, so your parents divorced, um, at what time? I was 17. Okay. So like right before you started going to college and doing that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were, um, did that, uh, like, w- so when your parents split, did that have any effect on your relationship to Judaism alone? I don't think so. Um, I feel like the religious aspects were separate. Um, their split affected me in a variety of different ways, but religion is not one that comes to the forefront for me. Okay. Mm. And then I just am struck by this idea of um, a philosophy getting, getting in the way and uh, impacting that relationship. And um, uh, what was that uh, like? I, I mean, you talked a little bit about how how uh, mind bending that was to have the idea of like the the, the unique. Uh, puzzle piece but um how did that affect your relationship with the past like 17 19 18 years of of your faith it made me realize and forgive me for anyone on this call or listening to this or you eugene who i know is at least somewhat religious um it made me truly realize that religion was a man-made endeavor to try to control people and or help people um, I think that if people do need religion to be helped, then they should proceed with religion, religion to be helped. Um, I wanted to proceed with measures that I found more tangible and that were backed by more, I don't know, more noble causes than money and power. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a quote from a book that I've read that, I, that really struck with me. And the quote is, religion is intangible emotional solace for those that require it. Um, it is something that is obviously abstract. It's something that probably isn't real. And even the most staunch religious folks will probably tell you that, no, the Red Sea wasn't parted by a man. No, um, Adam didn't eat an apple. And like, I don't even know the stories, but like the, the, all those stories probably aren't real. They're probably there to offer guidance and help to the millions of people that read them. 
Um, and to me, I was like, cool, that's great. I would rather read something else. And that's kind of where I found myself with philosophy. I'd rather read philosophy and feel emotionally connected to it as opposed to reading stories of Moses and Noah and Isaac and feel connected to those because I didn't feel a connection to those. Mm -hmm. Did you have a like, can you remember the moment where you were like, I no longer identify as Jewish? It was gradual, um, but it was fast. It was a fast process from the moment I started college to the moment I got out of there. I think part of it is that growing up in northern New Jersey, you're not exposed to much of anything besides Jews and Asians. And (laughs) being a a Tufts, I was exposed to a whole lot more. And all those different upbringings, all the different religions I was encountering, the different groups, the different people I was in class with, um, it kind of showed me that Judaism wasn't, wasn't the only thing out there for a belief system. Or even religion wasn't the only thing out there for a belief system. And um, you mentioned this in terms of Judaism was good for you and that it led to good values and, and kind of was a good like operating system for you. Um, and you no longer find it necessary. Um, I do know that you are, you know, starting to talk about children with Kate. And I wonder, have you thought about Um, what kind of operating system will you have for your child? The operating system I want for my child, and this is one that Kate and I have not discussed. uh, Actually, let me preface this by saying that while I am consider myself a very strong atheist or agnostic at best, Mm -hmm. um, Kate is still somewhat religious in the sense that she'll celebrate a holiday. We go to her folks house for Easter and Christmas and the big, the big holiday, the big holidays in Catholicism. Um, We do have a Christmas tree every year because Kate likes the Christmas tree. It's pretty. We like decorating it. It creates an ambient light. It's fun (laughs) to wake up and drink hot chocolate on Christmas morning and open presents. I get it. Um, So we still have that. And I think that our child, if it is in this world, will have that as well. Uh, Likely the very passive Catholic upbringing of Christmas and getting together with family for big meals and eating like a pig on holidays. And that's probably the extent of the true religion that will be there. Um, your question was more geared towards like the operating system that my child will be on and it will be on one of gratefulness for the world and the people around him or her, Mm -hmm. um, that will show itself in a few different ways. I want my child to be really in tune with nature. Um, I want them to spend a lot of time outside in all seasons. I want them to spend a lot of time with animals. Um, I want them to get an appreciation for things that are not in a human created society Mm -hmm. as well as for things in a human created society. Um, I'm also going to want my child to uh, be very close-knit with myself and Kate um, for as long as that child sees fit. Um, I know for myself, when I was 18, I was like, screw you, mom, going to college. Uh, But up until then, at least, I want to have a very close-knit family. Um, And maybe of equal importance to the previous two points is I want my child to have a good sense of helping others. Um, It's something that I've always been proud of and it's something that has definitely shaped me and that Judaism taught me mm-hmm. is that you do you do get a better appreciation for yourself and your community in the world when you see the less fortunate and make efforts to assist the less fortunate. So I, w- I want to get my child involved in the community, especially community service, very early. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a lot of experience there, whether it was volunteering at a hospital for many years when I was younger, transporting patients to various uh, wards in the hospital. Uh, to more recently, I was a big brother to a little brother in Dorchester for three and a half years. Um, and that was a really rewarding experience as well. Um, uh, now it's been kind of tough with life kind of gets in the way with work and all that, but 
Kate and I do try to volunteer a lot. We try to do so every Christmas season. We go to a woman's shelter um, and help prepare food and things like that. Um, so yeah, I guess the big three, the big three pillars of the operating system my child will have will being in touch with nature, being in touch with his family, and being in touch with less fortunate, mm-hmm. which I think are three key things that Judaism teaches. Mm-hmm. And I'm just taking the religion out of them and putting them in just more simple, no religion needed. These are three priorities for you, child. Please enjoy them. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And that does, uh, yeah, you take the very pragmatic aspects of um, uh, uh, an established faith like Judaism and apply it um, sans uh, holy text. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. No holy text, but everything else is fine. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, I think it's one thing that I wanted to touch back on was the, um, the advanced age of your parents when they had you. And, um, and so it sounds like it was not a, it was, it had, uh, relationship troubles leading up to that birth. Um, and I wonder what, uh, like, cause my parents were, uh, my mother was, I think like in her twenties when she had me, um, a little bit on the older side of the twenties, but, uh, you know, I, I have had friends who have you know, older parents, and it is a very different dynamic that they have, because there's such a wide generational gap where it's hard to relate. And, um, you know, my friend, the one person I'm thinking of in particular, his parents are right now, probably in their early 80s, like very old. And so they have, you know, he's already he's he's doing the he's like almost taking care of them. Like, uh, like, if as if he were in his 60s, like that it pushes his management of of like making decisions for mom making decisions for dad like those kinds of things in terms of their health um changes this dramatically and i wonder how has that landed on you yeah i i haven't luckily been forced with too many of those decisions yet i think mm-hmm. partially because both of my parents are relatively well off monetarily so they've been able to afford healthcare and things like that on their own um I am getting, it is getting to a point, at least with my father, where I'm going to have to start making some decisions, whether it be getting him a caretaker or whatever, any other measure that will make his life a little bit more independent. Um, he just doesn't get around as easily as he used to. And he has had some issues with falling and not being able to get up. Um, I've, you've probably seen the commercials for the little buttons that people wear around their necklace. I've mm-hmm. been pulling with that idea. Things like that I'll have to start doing. Uh, my mom, I think, has many good years left where she can decide on her own. Um, she also, again, both my parents have the means to take care of themselves, at least from money and access to doctors. So mm-hmm. I'm confident that they will be okay for at least a few more years. Um, I do know that my mom has it explicitly written out in her, uh, will and all the other documents that pertain to someone as they're not doing as great later in life, like how she wants to be treated and cared for. So she's almost made a lot of decisions for herself that I'll just have to execute on, which mm-hmm. is nice. Uh, my dad probably doesn't have that. Um, something I'll talk about with him. Um, but yeah, having older parents, you mentioned a generational gap and I think it's an interesting point. Um, I think that part of the reason I've had to, I've had this like emotional change over the past 10 to 15 years is because of my parents and how different they are for me. It's like forced me to mature myself in order to have a positive relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you mentioned it, like if your mom had you when you're, you're in, when she was in her twenties, you're much closer in age. You can probably understand the same technology you probably can understand the same references to movies, maybe from certain ages where you guys were both into cinema. Um, my mom, dad, and I do not share that. Mm-hmm. Um, for my dad and I, the extent of our uh, our common interests are sports and really nothing else. 
Um, and for my mom, I, I think the extent of our common interests is our just our love for each other. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't really have any common interests other than that. And part of it is because of the generational gap, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really interesting next probably 10 to 20 years of my life as they continue aging and get closer to passing um, because I know my responsibility with them will only increase, um, which is difficult living 300 miles away from either of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is, yeah, it's just a, it's a very interesting place to be. And um, I, I want to circle back to that point you made about uh, having to grow up in order to maintain a, a positive relationship with them. Like, what are some of the specifics? Like, do you have a story about that? I think part of it is I, when I was younger, my mom, here's a good example of our generational gap. Um, mm -hmm. My mom is really into like ballet and theater and opera and things <laughs> like that, where mm -hmm. I, I'm just not, I don't get it. I don't have the appreciation for it. Um, but when I was probably in between 15 and 23, I would suck it up and go to New York mm -hmm. with my mom and sit through the opera, maybe take a nap, uh, just so we had something to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of a more tangible thing I had to do to kind of bridge the gap. Uh, more intangibly, I think it was me focusing on my personal relationships with uh, Kate or previous girlfriends. Um, I know that my mom really wanted, really wants a grandchild, and it's something that I'm not sure if she'll get. Um, and so part of me bridging the gap was really focusing on my relationships with my girlfriends and now Kate uh, to show my mom that I am, I, I am a loving husband. Like I do have that in me because she really views me as a baby a lot of the time because that generational gap is so large that I'm just so much younger than she is. Mm -hmm. It's hard for her to relate to a lot of decisions I make in my life, whether it's traveling to strange countries or going to festivals or whatever it might be. Uh, so I kind of counteract that by focusing on my relationship with Kate and showing my mom how mature our relationship is and how forward it is maybe compared to where she was at age, at age 20, at age, at age 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, and I mean, the, the grandchild thing is a very interesting, uh, uh, question because, uh, it, becomes almost like a like deathbed request oh, like not that your 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 parents were necessarily that ill but it is very much like they won't but they they the child even if you have the child now there's it, it would be questionable how much they would remember grandma and grandpa on your side at least um versus like um like you know for for the gap that my parents and i have there my i'm pretty sure my child will remember my parents pretty well like that's like that's how much time they have and so that's just a very interesting like um understanding that uh in all like with all loving due respect like yes you you need to have these good relationships with your parents but at the end of the day they're gonna die probably before you or before yeah you know they, they're gonna they're gonna die before you and that your relationship with kate is going to outlast your mother and so like pushing to do something based off of her request and how it is a legitimate request. You know, that is, you know, that's a natural biological imperative to have grandchildren, but uh, respecting the fact that, you know, like I got to make sure that what I have here is good so that we're not rushing into something for, for reasons that aren't uh, genuine to both of us, because, you know, when the stressor has gone, it's like, is this something that we still even wanted? Right. And Kate and I have discussed it loosely as we've, as you and I have previously discussed, Maybe a child's in our future, maybe it's not. Uh, 
maybe I'm just too damn selfish where I want to spend all my money on myself and not my kid and have experience myself and not my kid. I really don't know yet. I'm still, that's part of me that hasn't really matured. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a Libra. So Kate always says I'm quite indecisive and can't make decisions and especially big decisions. I struggle to commit and this will definitely be one of them in my life. Mm. Um, previous ones have been proposing to Kate, uh, booking a wedding venue, buying a house, like that big stuff just, doesn't come easy to me. And this will be one that doesn't come easy either. I know that whatever decision I make will be the right one because that's whatever all the decisions I've made have been correct as it, as it pertains to Kate and our lives together. Um, I just, it just feels weird to have like that pressure to move fast. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is weird. Uh, but at the same time, maybe it's a good thing. You know, Kate and I are both over 30. Our, our reproductive cycles are probably strong now. Maybe they won't be very strong come 35 to 40. So mm-hmm. maybe it's smarter to think about it now. Uh, obviously biology says we probably should have had a kid already. Um, as you have luckily found out. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, it's, it's hard to weigh the the opinions of your parents who you care for so greatly. Um, especially mm-hmm. on my side where I am an only child. So I am their only hope at a grandkid as opposed to Kate's side of the family where Kate has two siblings and one of them is married and likely closer to kids than we are. So the pressure is not really coming from her side in a way, at least not familial, mm-hmm. uh, biologically, the pressure is there. I think for anyone on over 30. Um, but I, I've tried, I try not to let the pressures like determine what we're going to do. Like when we're ready, we're ready. Uh, I think right now it's impossible with the way that we're both working and mm-hmm. our goals for both ourselves and the property we want to buy and the vacations we want to take and all that kind of stuff would just not happen if we birthed the child today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's just a natural, like I was just thinking about, um, how this situation your parents find themselves in is a natural consequence of having a child at the ages of 37 and 40. It's an unfortunate reality, but it's hard to ask. It's it's like the, the, like, like you're talking about with the puzzle pieces, the puzzle, the the puzzle has been set by when, by having the child that late. And uh, there's only a few permutations of that puzzle piece that can really exist. And, um, yeah, it's just very interesting, especially as you start to approach that that age, just understanding like, oh, uh, like maybe maybe I'm going to be like, look, maybe this mirror that they're facing is a mirror that I'm going to have to face later. And um, it's just the reality of the situation and your desires. It is. Um, and for them, it was more of a, they didn't meet the right person. Um, they were having difficulties mm-hmm. with fertility. Uh, for me, I don't have those issues. I met Kate when I was 25. I don't think I have issues with fertility, but I guess I don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so those things aren't holding me back. What's holding me back is career, uh, other passions, and things that my mom and dad probably did, weren't thinking about. They both wanted to have a child, and mm-hmm. they did just when it was the right time for them, or I guess the only time for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, just one uh, one thing that I think is always interesting is like um, like uh, you will your sense of readiness will lag always behind your actual readiness like you will like you will be able to run a marathon physically before you think you're able to run a marathon and so these these questions about god posts like when you feel ready uh to like you know start talking about children and start you know making the steps necessary for it it's like that it's not that it's late but it's just lagging behind like you were ready before that before you were actually feeling ready if a stork dropped a baby off on my doorstep today i have no doubt that kate and i could care for it Mm -hmm. um I know that we're ready. The question is more of a, do we want it right now? Exactly. And that's just a very interesting, it's, uh, 
you know, from, from the perspective of this was not a planned baby that we're having, <laughs> like it's just, uh, you know, it's like you will step up and the, the, the growth that happens as a result of stepping up is um, uncomfortable. But however it is, it is um, catalyzing a lot of change within me that probably would have taken another decade to undergo. And especially for you, I'm pretty confident, even if it wasn't, even if this one was unplanned, you've always wanted children. Mm -hmm. This just happened sooner than you otherwise would have wanted. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate to say? Correct. Yeah. So for me, if Kate got an unexpected pregnancy, I'm not even in the right mind right now where I know I want a child in my life mm -hmm. at any point. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I know it's very societal and even biological for people to want offspring, but I feel partially bit, talking back to me molding people and people molding me. I feel like I've been molded in a way where I have passions and desires and things that I enjoy that aren't related to me having a child. I feel like I could live a happy life without one, if mm. that makes sense. It's so, yeah. So I'm not even there yet. So if I had an unplanned baby, it would be a slightly different struggle mentally than maybe one that you've undergone. <laughs> very fair. Very true. Um, so there were, uh, you, you mentioned uh, some, some descriptors, but uh, the ones that I remember are you are um, evol like I am, ch you are changing, you are um, confused, and then I think you put in vulnerable, and there was some, like husband and other things in there in that list. Uh, any others that stand out that you'd want to dip into? Um, I'm a risk taker, I think is a huge one. Um, it makes my relationship with Kate so interesting because she is maybe the most risk averse person I have ever <laughs> met. Um, so, for example, Eugene, when I when I go to a festival or I travel somewhere where, you know, bad things could theoretically happen, I don't think twice of it while Kate is always worried for my well-being. Um, I think part of the reason why I'm such a risk taker is because my mom is also really risk averse. Um, so like that swing. Was, she was the mom who kind of would rather we smoke weed in her basement so she could sit with us and watch us and make sure we didn't get weird as opposed to us like going to smoke in a car somewhere and risk driving. Um, that's how she was so risk averse that it actually resulted in her allowing me to do things that most other parents wouldn't allow their kids to do because my mom wanted so badly wanted to make sure I was doing it in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. Um, now I kind of realize what she was doing and I, I appreciate it. Um, when you and me and all the guys go do dumb shit, it's partially because I know that all of you guys are responsible. If my heart stops, I know you'll be the first one to resuscitate me. Um, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> so, but I'm also a risk taker in a lot of different senses. I make impulsive decisions sometimes, at least when they're small. Um, I can be very kind of open with my emotions without understanding what the ramifications might be. Uh, and even in terms of like traveling, I like going to strange places that no one's been before. Uh, Kate and I will go to a place just based on the fact that it doesn't have a lot of tourism. Um, and I'm usually a driving force behind that because I like seeing things that are untapped and I like doing things that no one else has done whenever possible. Um, mm -hmm. and I don't really think about any of the ramifications involved. So an example of this is, uh, more recently I will, I, Hanson and I went to a strange Island in the Philippines. I think that me out there and we rented motorci motorcycles and we were, getting fucked up and riding a motorcycle in a monsoon. I'm like, oh, this is fun. I'm just motorcycling high in my monsoon. No big deal. Um, when I know that 99.9% .9 of the people in the world would be really freaked out by being inebriated in a monsoon on a motorcycle on a small island in a third world country. Um, but for me, it was just no big deal. It's just like another day in the park. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure why I think of things that way. Um, but it has 
mostly led to positive experiences. So I'm almost proud to call myself a risk taker. And when Kate and I do like fight about a risk, risky versus risk averse thing, it's like a good thing to me. Like we're balancing each other in a nice way. So that's my take on being risky, which is mm-hmm. my middle name. <laughs> or Adam Risky Arazi. It's a good <laughs> to it. Do you uh, feel like your relationship to risk and the reward uh, as a result of risk has changed? Um, it doesn't, I mean, with your story about the monsoon, and also I know your history with ATVs, like it sounds like it's not, <laughs> not a lot has changed, but I wonder if you feel like it has. So it has, but it's almost been bolstered. Like a lot of the risky decisions I've made have turned out. Um, I went on OkCupid and I went on a single date with Kate and now she's my wife. Like that was a risk that paid off. Um, I left a really stable company in in a stable job in TripAdvisor to go work for a startup called Uber. And that really paid off. Um, I allowed Uber to send me around the world for months at a time away from my wife, away from my, my friends. And that paid off in a successful career there. Um, it seems like whenever I take big leaps, uh, they usually come with big rewards. Mm-hmm. And even when I take these little small leaps, they come with rewards as well, as long as a small leap is risky enough. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like whenever I am leading a risk-averse life is when I am the most confused because mm-hmm. I don't feel the progress that I normally crave, mm-hmm. which is partially what you guys saw in Florida. Um, I was having a panic attack because I was stressed at work because I didn't know the best path forward. And I didn't know what risk I could take to get there. I was kind of stuck in a rut. I was just being very complacent with my work and it was resulting in a really bad feeling inside that I wasn't succeeding. Mm. I guess what I'm seeing uh, as a theme is um, for you in terms of your development, it sounds like um, that, it is, it comes in quantum leaps of like very discrete decisions. Like as a, like you make a decision that is risk that has a risk reward profile to it and it pays off. And that as a result, you grow or like you, you fall into this, into this other like realm of, of reality. Um, but it, it sounds like the, uh, the only part that isn't, that doesn't have that quantum leap is the, is the, like the physical fitness and wellness and health, um, which is an interesting, like, it's like an analog and digital sort of us going side by side. And maybe with your advice, I could take a huge leap there. I just don't know what that leap would be. Like maybe it's getting on a serious supplement regimen, or maybe it's really developing a wild diet that I actually have motivation to stick to. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is right now. Um, I've been, it's, it's weird because you're right. In my, normally, in my normal risk-taking life, I have been very risk averse when it comes to physical fitness. I just go to the gym, I play soccer, I come home. I'm not doing anything mm-hmm. too wild. I'm not injecting myself with anything. I'm not doing any crazy fasting. I do it occasionally nothing like I know you might engage in. I'm not doing ketosis or anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, these weird trends that you hear about. Um, maybe I should, maybe that's the next move for me there. And maybe after this call, we can discuss some tactics. Maybe the risk, you can tell me some of the riskiest things I could possibly do in terms of physical fitness. Mm-hmm. And I will be down to give them a try. I think a good risk to take, uh, and we can talk more about this offline is uh, ecstatic dance. And I'm sure that there are some in Boston and it is a, it will be a risk in, in terms of social, uh, comfort and it's uh, you just go and you dance with strangers for like 90 minutes straight and you just you just dance for as long as for and as hard as you can i feel like we're professionals at that already and i've mm-hmm. succeeded at this many times before that seems like a non-risk for me non-risk <laughs> but i think uh i think in terms of that as a 
as like changing your perspective on what fitness is, is that that Uh, is the risk is like the, of like, just, just trying something new and different. I think it'll it'll be interesting. And uh, yeah, we can talk more about that later. Excellent. (laughs) All right. So um, you are evolving, you are confused, you are a husband um, and you are a risk taker. Is there anything else on that list? A son, a dog father. Um, oh, yeah. That's uh, in terms of the things that I think would normally be discussed on a podcast like this. I think that's it. Um, mm-hmm. I am a man. Mm-hmm. Um, I identify strongly with masculinity. Um, I I am a world traveler, and it's something I'm passionate about. But that's a lot more kind of tangible than maybe what you're going for. Like it's tough to deep dive into that maybe we can touch on a little later. It'll probably be touched on in the next prompt. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I consider myself an explorer in a lot of ways. Um, I think that you have seen that firsthand on our journeys to the Cape and Maine and everywhere in between. I like to go see nature and like get out and get wet and get dirty in the world (laughs) and just kind of be very ethereal with it. Um, yeah, I think that's all I am for now. But again, I'm ever evolving. So you might talk to me in a year and I'll be a whole bunch of new different things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, I think we talked a little bit about your status as a son. Um, but I think that something that would be interesting to dive into a little bit now is uh, your, your, your identity as a dog father. What's, for sure. What's going on there? How has that been? And is like, uh, do, do you feel do, like, do, is it separate um, or is it an extension of this like, confusion and evolving and risk-taking like what how does that all fit into the context of dog father i just love dogs man i don't (laughs) i don't understand people that don't um typically if you don't if you're if you don't love dogs or at least don't can't appreciate hanging out with them it's difficult for me to socialize with you and be one with you um i have grown up with dogs my whole life i got my first dog when i was think five or six um he passed about 10 years later and then my my family got a second dog, which, which passed, I think in 2013. And then my mom got two more dogs. But by that point I was out of the house and here in Boston and just was waiting for the right opportunity and the right property to get a dog. And this beautiful home that I have now is the perfect opportunity. We have a private backyard. The dog is happy. Uh, one of my joys about having a dog is maybe you'll find this with a child as well, but I like being able to, this is going to be real. This is going to bring everything full circle. I like being able to mold the animal into <laughs> <laughs> I want it to be. Um, think of it as like an emotional exercise for me. I feel mm. molded by so many other areas of my life. And then I can take all of that and project it onto this animal and create what I deem to be the perfect dog. Mm. Um, every day is a learning experience with him. Um, he is a 60 pound still puppy. He's only 11 months old. So there's still a lot of work to be done with him to kind of create this happy, um, permanent fixture in our lives um and it's led to a lot of joy and a lot of troubling times as well Uh, training a dog is not easy and the conversations you have to have when you're bringing up a dog and kate and i have had fights about the dog and we have fights this day about topics as simple as did you feed him uh to topics as strenuous as should we get him neutered uh and everything in between um so being a dog father is great. Uh, my life has allowed it to be very easy. Uh, Uber is a great company and my office is great and allows me to bring him to work with me every day. So financially, it's almost like a non-factor in our life. We get him food, but we don't have to get him any care. Mm-hmm. So he's just always with us. And 
has turned into quite the little love bug. Um, <laughs> one point I'll touch back on is the neutering aspects. I think that's probably the most pressing issue with the dog right now and one that is top of mind for me. Um, touching back on how strongly I identify as a male, um, I think that one of the things that makes a male a male, and probably biologically this is true, is the amount of testosterone that is flowing through our bodies compared to non-males. Um, I think that's something that makes my dog himself is the fact that he has a beautiful, pristine set of balls that are pumping beautiful testosterone throughout his body, which is helping him grow. It's helping him. Uh, it's it's created this really excitable, um, excitable person, excitable personality that has that has been a struggle to rein in, but we've reined it into a point where he's like pretty perfect right now. Uh, he can be excitable, he can be calm, uh, but if nothing else, he behaves, and that's what's most important. Um, when a neutering conversation came up recently, it was one of great tension because if left to, left to my own devices, I would not get the dog neutered because I don't see a reason why. Um, obviously, Kate is the risk-averse person, and in our contract with the adoption agency, it says you have to get them neutered. Uh, I'm a risk taker. I'm a rule breaker. So for me, I'm like, screw that contract. Let's fight the let's fight the system and let's have this unneutered dog. Um, anywho, that was a battle I lost. Um, he'll be getting neutered in December, um, and I will cry a little bit and then be happy again once I realize that hopefully it was the right thing to do. Um, for this one, I hope that Kate is right. Yeah, that's uh, the battle of risk averse versus risk, uh, risk tolerant. And um, there's a lot of like, like practicing the, the whole aspects of parenting where it's too like co-parenting with somebody else. Um, you know, like, like you said, if left to your own devices, but you're in a relationship with this person who is helping you. And so it changes the the fabric of what it's like to, uh, you know, mold this brain. and um, I think there's a lot of really interesting things there. <laughs> um, do you know um, what what it will like with with your? I don't know. I I've lost this question. But uh, yeah, do what? Do you have any other thoughts about Bron going on? I originally wanted two dogs. Um, and I might still want two dogs only because I think one of the biggest issues with a non-neutered, at least male dog, I have no experience with female dogs, uh, non-neutered male dog. One of the biggest issues is how much energy they have. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot of work on my day to get that energy out of him and get him to a stable state. Um, it usually manifests itself in me playing tug of war with him for hours on end when we get home until he's <clears> tired and I'm already exhausted. Um, but having another dog allows us to simply open the back door, let them get the, let them get their energy out, come back in, and it's much less stress on Kate and I to kind of normalize them. Mm -hmm. um, TBD, because right now I can't take two dogs to work. And if we do have two dogs, then Kate would have to take hers to work or the other dog to work, which would be a little bit tricky. Um, yeah. So other than that, no more real thoughts on Braun. Um, my door is closed. Otherwise, I would call him in here for a cameo for you. Know we're, <laughs> we're on video chat right now. Uh, so, um, but yeah, Braun is a, a good egg, and it couldn't have made a better decision to choose him over his littermates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it'll just be very interesting to check in after you know post castration and uh, see uh, what uh, how did this kind of settle on him and you. It's going to settle rough on both of us, I'm sure. Uh, him physically, me mentally. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, you you ready to start talking about the next prompt? Sure. All right, how do you finish that? Uh, before I die, I want. Before I die, I want to 
both explore passions deeply and also see a lot of new shit constantly. Um, I'll touch on the passions part first. Uh, I feel like in my life, I haven't had something that has just been mine. Um, back to the fact that I'm being molded by the people around me. So I just kind of do whatever they like to do. I watch the shows that they want to watch, whatever. Um, one of the passions I picked up lately, although I don't know how long staying it will be, is baking. Mm-hmm. Um, I do really enjoy it. And, but again, I, don't, I think it's realistically, if I'm being honest with myself, it's something that I'll just do occasionally and won't be a true passion of mine. So in a way, I'm still searching for that. Um, I think that it'll be easier to find that passion when I have a bigger home and maybe can explore things like painting or woodworking or things that I just can't do now because I don't have the, the physical capita to make it work. Um, so I'm kind of limited right now by being in Boston and being in a 700 square foot apartment. But mm-hmm. eventually when I have more land, I'm excited to kind of just like try new shit and find something that I really enjoy doing. Um, I do think it's going to be artistic in some fashion. Um, I've mm-hmm. always found myself gravitating towards art, even though I can't draw. Um, so I think it'll end up being in that path. Uh, so aside from finding that passion, like really diving into it and making it a true part of who I am until the day that I die, I also want to see a lot of new things. Um, most practically, I am, you always hear people say they're obsessed with traveling. I am one of them. Um, I'm really obsessed with traveling in an authentic way. Um, when I travel, I don't like staying in hotels. I don't like going on cruises. I don't like going to resorts. I prefer to stay as authentic as possible and almost try to live like the people in the place I'm traveling. Um, I think that this, this, I'm lucky enough to have developed this joy through the ability of my parents to take me traveling based on their vacation time and their money. Um, I explored a lot of the world before I even left New Jersey to go to college. I had seen, I had seen a lot of stuff. Um, and then during college, uh, our, my buddy Foley and I had the opportunity to go live in Greece for five months. And that was, I think the true creation of this desire in me to live locally. Um, mm-hmm living in a rundown apartment with roaches in a really working class section of Athens felt right. It felt like I was Greek. Um, I felt like I was part of the community. Um, it felt so good to walk outside and recognize the streets and navigate myself and all that kind of stuff. Really settling there was such a good experience. And I try to replicate that wherever I go. Um, so two days from now, Kate and I are going to Mexico city. We're staying at a pretty authentic Airbnb. Uh, we have a few things lined up that would probably be considered more first world touristy but i think we're going to spend most of our trip trying to meet with locals taste coffee and chocolates and <laughs> eat the most raunchy street food that we possibly can mm-hmm. um and hopefully really get some good experiences and maybe meet a friend or two and take it from there um so as i before i die i want to see as much of the world as possible one of the things that confuses me and like causes me some really light non-consequential stress is when I go to a place like Mexico City and I spend four days there, I know I'm going to see a small minutia of what the whole city has to offer, much less the whole country. Mm-hmm. So it, then it becomes a struggle of Kate and I to choose what is important for us to see, knowing that we're not going to see 99.9% of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really hard for me to digest. Uh, it almost want, it makes me one of the main reasons I want to live a long life is so I can see more of the world <laughs> uh, in, an, in an ideal alternate universe i live forever and just continue traveling until there's literally no inch left of the world that i haven't seen um back to my explorer personality i like exploring and seeing new stuff and really getting a feel for it 
So knowing I will never be able to see everything is tough for me to digest. Mm -hmm. um, so we try to pick and choose and we prioritize stuff that we really can't see elsewhere, um, whether it be an experience we can't have elsewhere or a thing we can't see anywhere else. Uh, that's largely how we prioritize. So for example, I don't have much of an interest in going to Paris because I can go on anyone's Instagram and look at every single picture of every single street corner in Paris I could ever see. Um, I could go to Miami or New York or some other cosmopolitan city and live like a Parisian if I wanted to. Uh, on the other hand, when Kate and I decide on a vacation and we choose somewhere like Mexico City, um, it is tough to get a Mexico City vibe in the US because here we are not in the economic system that Mexico finds itself in. We're a lot better off here. Um, the food, it's tough to find the true authentic Mexican food that we crave. And there's a, a lot of different cultural aspects of Mexico that we enjoy and can't get here, whether it be the architecture or what I'm most excited for, which is Lucha Libre, um, <laughs> things that you just can't find in the US. Um, mm -hmm. So that's my travel bug, if you will. Uh, my other, oh, another uh, tangential piece to this. Uh, before I die, I want to accumulate at least one, if not more properties that are attractive enough for you and all my other friends and my family to want to come visit me in beautiful places in the world. Um, I am lucky enough that my mom is a partial owner of a beautiful house on Cape Cod, which all of you love. And it is a great reason for all of us to get together in a beautiful place in the world. I want a much bigger place, somewhere beautiful, so we can continue that tradition long after my mom passes. If I have children, that they can continue that tradition, kind of like an Arazi foothold somewhere in nature, that is just a fantastic getaway for anyone and everyone who wants to come visit. Mm. Okay, so let's, I mean, let's dive into that uh, since we're already kind of there is, do you know where that place would be? I have no idea. Um, all I know is that I want it to be accessible. So it's not going to be in like Western Australia, which would take anyone $5,000 and three days to get to. Um, I want it to be somewhere that is relatively reasonable to get to. Um, more recently, I've obviously been obsessed with the Philippines. It's one of my favorite countries in the world. And I fantasize about buying a small Philippine island and just <laughs> making it a compound. Um, unfortunately, in the Philippines, you have to be Filipino in order to purchase property. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are a couple of ways around it that I'm kind of researching right now. Uh, <laughs> but more practically, um, the location that we're going for the bachelor party in March intrigues me. Um, anywhere in the U.S. that is relatively remote yet still has some of the comforts of home where I can go to a grocery store within 30 minutes, where I can, you know, access a hospital if I need to, things like that. Those are important to me, but I still love the remoteness and crave that. Uh, the Cape Cod house is wonderful, but I don't think it's remote enough for my liking. It is beautiful. It offers a lot. Um, there's too many people around. When I go on a vacation, when I go with Kate or I go with you guys, I do want to feel a sense of seclusion that I don't, that we don't feel on Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. um, that's part of why I choose to leave Boston and go on vacation is to get away from the chaotic life that is here and see significantly less people most of the time. Um, this house that I eventually have will be large. Um, even, even if it's just Kate and I, I wanted to have enough bedrooms and comfort so that you and Mackenzie and Hanson and Kira and Foley and Morgan, et cetera, can all come and 
spend time and be comfortable there together. Very interesting. And um, yeah, I think that'll be, uh, it'll be a very interesting thing to see how this uh, all sh- uh, shakes out. Yeah, step one is getting money. So that's been a priority of mine. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And once the money is there, that's going to be one of our, we've actually been looking at the second homes, but the reason we've been looking in the second homes is strictly as an investment to eventually roll over into like a future home that we really want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Cause we're, we don't have the money right now to buy this perfect oasis that we're talking about. Um, but we do potentially have money to buy something else in Boston that can appreciate and then we can sell it and then buy our oasis and then invite you all for a party. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's an interesting uh, thread of, um interaction that you enjoy with non-human animals or like just uh, like not humans i think that's uh seems like you know in terms of like you being a dog lover not being able to understand people that don't like dogs um, or at least appreciate dogs um and your desire to go out uh into these interests like just uh you know the humans are just such a small uh, portion of the life on this planet and so being able to appreciate or at least even go out and see the different ones is i think an important thing in your life absolutely and so that's why whatever home we eventually buy it's not going to be a flat in paris it's going to be a chateau in southern france would be a mm-hmm. better example of what we'd want gotcha um and then now let's circle back to let's take another step back into the travel piece um it sounds like the, as you mentioned, that the the Greece trip really kind of ignited the the authentic travel aspect. And uh, I had a, a similar like kind of corollary experience when I went to Egypt and, and lived uh, there for a month. And uh, it's a very different, and it's hard to describe in a way that's sort of like, it's hard to describe a psychedelic experience, or it's hard to describe like child rearing when you've never had a child like it's just there's there's like a binary like before and after and when you've had the travel experience it's just such a different way of looking at the world and understanding how um like the ways that we're like you know bring a circle all back again like the way you're molded by the culture that you're in and understanding how different the cultures can be i think is a very important aspect and it's uh something that more i think everybody should travel if they are able to i 100 percent agree and I know people in my life and Kate's who, for example, are in their 40s or 50s and have never left the country. And to me, how am I going to have a fruitful conversation on both ends with this individual when the experiences that I've had are just so different from the ones that you've had? Mm-hmm. It's, it's bizarre to me. I almost think that travel should be like a right. Like there should, everyone should get like a free round trip plane ticket, <laughs> X amount of money somewhere in the world paid for by their local government to see something different and get, cause it gives you a better appreciation for what you have here. Um, living in Greece, I came home and I was like, wow, I have a shower that I can stretch my arms out in. I can go to a grocery store and get a jar of peanut butter. Um, they do not have peanut butter in Greece. It's like not even a thing that people think about. Um, things like that, which you just don't appreciate. And you come home and you're like, damn, we, we have it really good here. This country offers us every little last thing we could possibly need. Um, and I am grateful for that. Mm-hmm um do you are there specific experiences i know you were saying that you want to see everything if you know if you were able to um are there things that you desperately want uh to experience or see in these in the, around the world there are places that i desperately want to go um mm-hmm. but it's not for specific things just those cultures i'm infatuated with um 
hearkening back to my time in Greece, uh, Foley and I had the opportunity to go to Estonia, which is a ex-Soviet Union country near Russia. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be pretty eye-opening in terms of the, the things that the people do for enjoyment, uh, to the food, to the, the way that the cities are built is just so different to what we have here. And I've been very interested in Eastern Europe ever since. So I've been dying to get to Lithuania um, and Bulgaria and those countries out there where I know it's just like a big city with some crazy architecture and churches and wild people wearing fuzzy hats and then <laughs> masses of nothing for as long as you can drive. Um, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, Kate and I experienced it in Latvia, which is the closest I've gotten to Eastern Europe since then. Um, and it was just a beautiful country, beautiful people. Uh, anywhere where I can feel really good about spending my money and not being ripped off is nice, which brings me back to Paris where I don't think I can go to because I'll feel like an idiot spending uh, $15 for a cheese sandwich. Um, mm-hmm. Unlike a country like Latvia where I can spend $15 and have a four course gourmet prepared meal. Um, so Eastern Europe is one of them. Uh, due to my time in the Philippines and travels that my friends have had, I am very interested in the other parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, specifically Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Um, so that's also on the docket for us. In terms of my nature-loving self, um, Kate spent a month in Costa Rica getting her yoga certification to teach, and she really enjoyed it. So I don't know if Costa Rica's in the cards, but I have been really interested in the jungles of Bolivia um, in that area, which I feel is like a little more untapped. I feel like Costa Rica is like all the rage now, and if I go there, it's just going to be a bunch of tourists. So looking for that next the next uh the next big out hipster everybody exactly that's what i'm trying to really really what i'm trying to do is out hipster them in terms of travel um you've 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 found my my secret here eugene Um, (laughs) so i think that bolivia is the next hipster location that will eventually be like costa rica Mm -hmm. um but all these places i want to go to you can look at the three of them individually and they're all so different uh but what they're all unique in is that they're going to be absolutely nothing like the united states Mm -hmm. um unlike a London or a Paris or Berlin, which do have a lot of qualities that are similar to Boston. Um, I want to get out there and different as much as I can. Mm. Mm, good stuff. Um, or do you imagine yourself um, expatriating? Like, do you imagine yourself uh, like falling in love with another place so much like the Philippines where you, that's where you spend your time? The answer to that question is yes, I would love for that to happen because as much as I love this country, it is expensive, um, at least where we're living now. And to allow, to allow Kate and I to retire in the way that we probably want to eventually, expatriating is probably the more realistic path to retire in that way. Um, but that has a whole slew of issues. My parents' age would not allow us to expatriate now because of the eventual health concerns that they will all have, mm-hmm. uh, her parents as well. It just doesn't make sense at this stage. Um, it's funny that you say that because I actually just got back from the Philippines last week and it was my first trip to a different city than Manila. Uh, mm-hmm. All my previous trips to the Philippines have been to Manila. This time I had the pleasure of going to Clark, which is a suburb-ish of one of the largest cities in the Philippines called Angeles, which is known as the expatriating capital for men of many different ethnicities who come there for the women uh, because mm-hmm. it is one of the prostitution capitals of the world. Um, and it, I met uh, a few men just at, at restaurants and bars who like were clearly just left America or left Europe or left Korea to go to Angeles and just live out their money with young Filipino women. And it was eye-opening to me, not because that's something I want, it's something I don't want. I'm, 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 I'm 
really enjoying my time with Kate. I have no reason to want to expatriate to a country and sleep with countless women. Um, but I did find it interesting that their reasoning for expatriating was so simple. They wanted to sleep with women that are young and they could do it for cheap. And that's why they chose the Philippines. I would choose the Philippines for entirely different reasons. I would choose the Philippines because it's fucking beautiful. <laughs> and it is an, it's a hotbed in terms of both the economy with the service culture they have there. A lot of companies are using them to support customers in the US and Canada and Australia and the UK mm -hmm. because of the English speaking ability of the people there and the school systems that they have. Um, but it's also a great place as a branch off to travel the world. You are within six hours of all of Asia, all of Indonesia, India, Australia. Uh, you are maybe 10 hours from the West Coast of the US if you have to get back. It just seems like a nicely located area, which probably speaks to why the US has such a military presence there. We have a couple of bases in the area. So it was interesting for me to kind of think about why people expatriate, uh, because people can expatriate for sex, they can expatriate for love if they find someone in a different country that they want to spend the rest of their life with, they can expatriate because they can't afford to live in their country and they need somewhere that's cheap. For me, I would choose to expatriate to the Philippines because of its beauty, its cheapness, the food, the people, um, like a slew of reasons that other people may not think about when they think of the Philippines. Um, but wherever Kate and I choose to expatriate to, if we do choose that, I can guarantee you that there are two qualities that place will have. It will be, actually, let me give it three qualities. It will be cheap because I think that's one of the main reasons for expatriating. It'll be absolutely gorgeous, uh, nature wise, and it will have some damn good food. <laughs> All very good things. Uh, whether you do or not is a very good question about, uh, you know, like you said, you have a lot of anchors here in the States that will, for various reasons, uh, make that difficult or not happen at all. Right. And it's weird to like think about those anchors. Like what if Kate and I did it tomorrow? How would that change our life? We moved to the Philippines. I've thought about it because I could definitely get a job there. I spend a lot of time working there. It is realistic for me to move there. Um, the question becomes, if my mom gets sick, you know, right now, if my mom had pneumonia, for example, or I, I'm not probably not calling, let's say she had, I don't know, what's like a moderate disease for an elderly person to get that isn't really life-threatening, but still really shitty? Pneumonia. Pneumonia <laughs> okay. is pretty good. So if my, mom, if my mom called me today and said she got pneumonia, I would probably go home from Boston and make sure she was good. Mm -hmm. If I was in the Philippines and she had pneumonia, maybe that doesn't make the cut anymore. Maybe mm -hmm. that's not severe enough for me to get home. Um, similarly, you know, let's say... Uh, a buddy of mine is getting married in, I don't know, Maine, for example. Obviously, if I'm in Boston, I'm definitely going to go to that Maine wedding. It's not a question. But if I'm in the Philippines, that becomes a no very quickly. Um, so things like that are interesting to think about. But it's also interesting to think about the fact that I could potentially retire 15 to 30 years sooner if I choose to move there, mm -hmm. which to me is arguably the goal of life. Get yourself in a position where you can enjoy yourself without having to be a slave mm -hmm. and to that end if that's the mission of life then i think that expatriating has to be in the cards sooner rather than later mm. um I'll, i think this is a really good segue back to the first thing you mentioned uh when i prompted you was uh the passion but i just want to touch very briefly on this idea of um like uh you know if you do expatriate the 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 screening that you must 
take for um, activities and travel it changes a lot, and it feels like I'm I've expatriated to the Philippines. Well, as uh, because I'm in medical school, like I have to just make those decisions, and um, but it's uh, I don't know I just laughed at that, but I think that there's something interesting about this idea of um, of expatriating like return like uh, retiring early being the goal and uh, circling also back to this idea of of wanting to pursue a passion deeply. Um, do you see your ability to pursue a passion deeply? Do you see that as a profession in a way that will uh, provide income and a life livelihood? I don't know. This may seem like harsh, but I don't know if I care. Mm-hmm. Um, if it ends up being something that I can make money on, cool. That's an added bonus. That's not my stressor for it, though. What my, my goal is, and talking back to the expatriating a bit, is I want to make enough money where I can explore a passion without having to make it make money for me. Mm-hmm. If I want to drop X thousand dollars a month on pottery equipment so I can make really cool bowls and pots and shit like that, I want to do that without having a reservation that this is impacting another area of my life. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Realistically, aside from a few, passions do require a financial investment, um, especially if my passions are artistic. Uh, they realistically are going to require some upfront cost, whether it's for a woodworking table or saws for woodworking or pottery spinning things to make pottery or art supplies, whatever. Um, even if it's not, let's say my passion was gardening. Uh, gardening can be expensive if you are getting the right kind of soils and getting the right kind of equipment to test the chemicals and all that. Whatever it's going to be, it's going to involve a level of financial independence, um, which I don't think I have right now to really pursue it. Um, if I, when I find this passion, I'm going to start exploring it. So let's say I end up, let's say five years from now, I'm still baking up a storm. Mm-hmm. Cool. When I buy my next house, I'm going to make a baking room. It's going to be a separate kitchen just for baking. It's going to cost me ten to $20,000 to build. But when it's built, it's going to be perfect. And I'm going to bake everything. Maybe I will open <laughs> a little shop and like sell pies out of my window, mm-hmm. like a little old lady. I, I really don't know. Um, but I don't want my passion to stop, but just like me baking stuff on the weekends for my friends when they come over and get weird. I want it to be a little bit more than that, if baking is the avenue that it ends up being. Mm, I guess um, I think it's very interesting that you took that um, in this direction because um, I'm I'm asking almost from like a um, like what like I, I think it's very interesting that you're talking about this passion as entirely separate from a. Um, career or profession um, in that you're not trying to find ways in which you're able to do both at once like you want you you very much want this passion in your life but you're willing to wait and wait and wait until it's ready until you like other things have settled in uh, but you're not looking for ways in which you can you know what I mean? do, you, do you kind of understand what I mean like there, there's like a barrier in in the way that you're describing there is a barrier and I touched on it before there's a a physical capita barrier in the sense that there's not many passions you can pursue in a 700 square foot apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a monetary barrier in the sense that I'm not floating in money. Like I, there are things that I might want that I can't afford if I wanted to, if I have to choose between building a woodworking studio in the basement or uh, I don't know, like paying vet bills for brawn, obviously that's a choice that is very easy to make um, brawn being my dog. Um, so hopefully when I reach either a more, uh, either a bigger house or more money or both, it'll mm-hmm. open up more doors for passions I could possibly pursue. 
Um, one clarifier I probably should make is that you're, you're talking about this link between, or a lack of a link between my passion and my profession. Um, I, that's correct. There is no link there. What there is going <laughs> to, what there is going to be a link in though, is whatever my passion is, I want it to be something that people enjoy talking about with me and enjoy experiencing with me. So that's why baking has been a really natural fit right now is because if I become a good baker, you guys are going to come over to my apartment, and eat my baked goods because they're fucking awesome. <laughs> and I I can assure you of that. They're great. You should come try them. Um, but if it's woodworking, for example, I would probably want to make people birthday gifts out of wood that aren't just like stupid. It would be like a really nice gift that they would cherish. If it's gardening, I would want to make them baskets of fruits and vegetables, other things that I've grown, things like that. Um, so to that sense, I don't think my passion would be like marathon running where it really doesn't offer enjoyment to anyone other than myself. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that my passion would be I'm trying to think of one that like isn't physical fitness related. Maybe you can think of one that's like very self-serving. Mm. Uh, here's a good one. Reading. Mm -hmm. I think reading is a good one. I think that it's maybe, maybe a slightly off one because technically I could join a book club and like read with people and talk about books. But absent of that, I think reading is pretty self-serving in the sense that it brings you internal enjoyment, but it's hard mm. to exude that passion to give enjoyment to others. Okay. Um, yeah, I, get, I see what you're saying. My passion is going to produce something that other people like having. Mm. Mm -hmm. I see. And I guess it's a, like, a, are you willing to wait for, uh, like, to kind of do the grind, the nine to five, Monday through Friday grind until you get to that point? Or I guess, like, um, you know, do, do you know what I mean? Like, are you, are, are you willing to kind of like suck the night, the 40 hours a week? Uh, and then you kind of get to do this passion on the weekends for a while until you're able to retire ideally, you know, a little bit early for now. Yes. Um, especially cause I'm really enjoying my work right now and it is financially lucrative for me. And it's like setting me, putting me in a position where I potentially pursue these passions later in life. Mm -hmm. But I do consider just like right now, I consider baking like a, a side passion. It's not, doesn't require my full devotion soccer is a side passion doesn't require my full devotion mm -hmm. work is a side passion that doesn't require my full devotion and as long as it maintains that way i am going to keep doing it uh, because one thing that my father always told me is to don't buy shit now and like don't do shit now unless it's going to benefit you in the future mm -hmm. um, and i take that very strongly when it comes to work and spending money um, i'm excessively frugal unless i think that the money is going to a place that's going to benefit me on down the line and allow me to no longer have to work so I can pursue my passion with 100% energy. Mm -hmm. It's Eventually, it's going to start swaying. Right now, let's say I'm working 75% of the time and doing passion projects 25% of the time. That's eventually going to flip to 50-50. Then it's going to flip to 25 work, 75 passion. Eventually, I hope it will be zero work, 100 passion. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to happen overnight, and nor do I expect it to. Um, it's mm -hmm. going to happen when Kate and I are ready to devote ourselves financially to the next stage of life. Uh, whenever that might be mm -hmm. and you'll never see the um the the 50 50 75 25 just becoming 100 passion like I, I get no no but like uh in that like you don't i guess what i, I what i'm driving at is, and digging into is like you're you can't imagine a way in which you're like it, it will be a transition but it will never be like you get to do both at the same time I don't think I can possibly do that. Uh, I don't think my mindset would allow me to, at least not with the job I have now or the careers that I want to pursue. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe if I was waiting tables or doing something that requires, uh, that's a little more, 
don't know, fluid and I can like pick, I can stop waiting tables and like pursue passion for a month, mm-hmm. then pick it up again. Driving for Uber is probably the perfect example I can actually give you. Um, I could do my passion and devote 100% of the time. And then when I need 100 bucks, I can go out on the road, come mm-hmm. back to my passion. Unfortunately, it's just not my career right now. Actually, I'll say fortunately, it's not my career right now. Um, I am comfortable working my ass off and try and make a lot of money so I can hopefully get to this steady state of passion sooner rather than later. Um, one of my utmost goals in life is to retire as soon as possible. Um, mm-hmm. After working a fruitful career, I enjoy what I do. I want to keep enjoying it, but it always has to be geared towards retiring as quick as possible. I think that there are two reasons why people might work. They might work because they enjoy it and they're doing a passion that also happens to be their work. Like I imagine that's where you'll be going. Uh, when you enter the field of psychiatry, I know it's something that you're passionate about and you're going to get paid handsomely for. Mm-hmm. So all the power to you. That's fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not as passionate about meetings all day and getting on the phone with people and traveling to foreign countries and consulting. It's just not as, it's not what I, what I grew up wanting to do. It's, I kind of fell into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I worked there for a different reason. And that's because it is going to set me up to pursue my passion at some point later down the line. That makes sense. I, it's just uh, the the divide. Uh, I you know, I, as you mentioned, I'm fortunate in that I'm able to combine both. Um, but I think it's just very interesting that you have that uh, that barrier between the two. It is an interesting divide, and I, I do think that's honestly a true split between people and their work. They either work because they have to, because they want to pursue their passions later, or they work because that is their passion. Mm-hmm. Um, you, someone in a rock band, a basketball player, um, a chef. Those kind of things, I think, are people who are, they work the more compassion is combined, where I don't think you'll find many people who are consultants because it's just <laughs> what they've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You, probably won't, you probably won't find a lot of lawyers because it's what they always wanted to do. Maybe a CEO is an interesting example of what they've always wanted to do. If you really want to run a company, I think it's way too stressful to be something that you're passionate about. Um, yeah, I, if if I, for example, if I stick with baking, there will be a day in my life where I say, "Fuck it, I'm going to open up a bake shop." <laughs> and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> gotcha. Um, how do you finish that next prompt? When I die, I want. I want to be very physically comfortable. Um, I do not want to die in pain, and I would ideally not want that to be due to drugs. I'd want to when I die, I want it to be painless without drugs. Um, obviously, if I get hit by a bus and I'm jacked up on morphine till I die. That's just how it has to be. But if I do get lucky to die of old age or disease, I would like that disease to take me in the most painless way possible. Um, I don't know what that moment of death entails, but I at least think that in some ways, like that last moment of your life lives infinitely in you. So I would like to be surrounded by people I love and care about. I would like to not be in a hospital. I would like to be in nature or somewhere I call home. Um, I would like my family around me to be comfortable um, being there with me. Uh, it is a selfish thing to want their, them to be standing by me when I die. But if only if they're comfortable doing that, um, I would not want them to be uncomfortable doing that. And then them having a poor grieving process because of that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, when I die, I also want to have, maybe this is more like, I actually think I'm getting into more like after I die. Let me stick to when I die. And I feel like I've covered those points there. Um, maybe more metaphysically, when I die, I want to have a better understanding of death than I do now. 
Um, if you infected me with some disease and told me I was going to die tomorrow, I would not be obviously not ready for it, but like mentally in terms of my understanding of death and my, my appreciation or lack thereof for it, I would not be ready to die peacefully, if that makes sense. Obviously not happily, but I would not be at peace with death in any way, sense or form. Mm -hmm. Um, I need like a lot more life experience and a lot, I have to experience death more on the other side of things in order to understand what it's going to be like for me. Um, in a lot of ways, I've been blessed with a lack of family members dying in my life. Um, the closest person to me who I lost was my grandmother, and she passed when I was 13. And to be honest, I was really too young and too emotionally immature, immature to get much guidance from that. Um, I do feel that the next big death in my family, whether it's my mom, my dad, or an uncle, or an aunt, or whatever it might be, will be a lot more of a learning experience, and hopefully one that takes me to the next, next stage of understanding. Mm -hmm. Have you been in the presence of the transition from life to death? I have. Um, that was an extremely powerful moment for me. Um, my mom, my second dog. So it was the dog that my mom had when I moved out to college. And it was kind of like her only friend when her and my dad were separated. She was having trouble finding a boyfriend. Um, it's a, it's a dog that I had for about 10 years of my life that I never really got along with. Um, it was a very protective of my mother. And it would snarl at me if I would approach it uh, when it was with her. It was like a very protective little terrier kind of thing. Um, but in Thanksgiving of, I think it was 2012 or 2013, uh, it had kidney failure. And my mom and I were together. It was literally Thanksgiving Day. We were in Pittsburgh with family. We had to fly home. We took this dog. And it was very clear when we saw it that it was, it was, it was done. Um, my mom didn't have a dinner due to her strong emotions for the animal it was literally her only friend for so long and really still was to that day um due to her strong emotions for the animal it was ended up being me who had that animal grasped on my chest while it was euthanized in my mother's bedroom mm -hmm. and i felt it i felt its heart stop beating i felt it stop breathing i watched its eyes close and that whole experience was beyond surreal um then i actually passed it off in its death i, I actually held the dead animal as my mom gave it its final kiss goodbye. And I took that dead animal to the veterinarian's car so that they can take it away to be cremated. And I still, to this day, sometimes like tear up in emotional states when that fleeting image of the animal dying on my chest crosses into my mind, because it was obviously a powerful moment, but it's still one that I don't fully understand and have trouble grasping how it all kind of happened. Obviously it's straightforward. It got euthanized, its heart stopped, it died on my chest. But those little moments within there, uh, the animal wincing when the needle went in, um, it looking at me longingly as it passed, like those kind of things just don't, they don't, they don't make as much sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, what a, what a proximity to it as well. Holding it, it was truly amazing and bizarre and emotional and I was crying. My mom was crying. The animal had no idea what was going on. Obviously, they're weird. There's a vet and the vet tech in the room. My mom and I are emotional wrecks. This thing is sitting here like, "Fuck me!" Like I need to go outside and take a shit. My kidneys are failing. Um, yeah, it was it was weird. Um, the one saving grace about it is like it was a death where it was like very much the right time. It was a 12 year old dog. It was in pain. It was miserable. It made sense that it was its time to go. Um, I worry how my experience will death be if this, if I'm dealing with someone and it's really doesn't seem like it's their time to go. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
I think it was interesting that you talked about um, wanting to die in a way without pain, but without the use of uh, of opioids and um, other other agents to make the the, the transition more comfortable. Um, and I wonder where does that come from? Like, have you seen something? Like, was there another death that, that where you saw somebody? Uh, experience it clean like you know quote cleanly and and without these the aid of, of these drugs or um do you see the op- opposite of it where they, they overused it and you you were like i do not want that it's it's not based on experience it's based on my views of like science and the soul um i've obviously used some fashion of opioids before whether it be vicodin or percocet or any of the other things that people take um and they are a numbing agent in a lot of ways, but they don't just stop at your body. I do think that they numb your mind as well. And that's why people get addicted to them. Um, and to that end, when I do pass, I don't want to have a numbed mind. I want mm-hmm. my mind to be fully engaged and aware of the situation. Um, because in my weird spiritual view, I think that that will make it a more, give it more fine. It's kind of silly to say, but it will give it more emotional fin- finality for me. Mm-hmm. as opposed to just being like in a clouded haze and not knowing what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any experiences or um, beliefs about what that moment will feel like as you transition from life to death? Not really. I could kind of talk abstractly about it. I feel like it's going to be a moment where I become maybe short of breath. It's going to be a moment where it feels like you're taking in a huge gasp of air. Like, uh, as, as you can tell, I have trouble describing it. I do have like mm-hmm. internal visions of what it is, but it's hard to put them into words. Um, I think that when people talk about like seeing the white light at the end of the tunnel and stuff, I think that's more akin to as the senses start to shut down and like the whole body starts to kind of come into itself and get ready for death. Um, you just kind of see white light because that's the last sensation that your body has is the fleeting light patterns in the world as your eyes no longer sense the light. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that there's a similar thing. Like you can say, you know, death is like seeing the white light at the end of the tunnel. It's also like hearing the faint hum at the end of the forest, or it's also like smelling that last scent after you bake a pie. Like there are tons of little metaphors we can play here about the senses mm-hmm. and how they interact in that moment. Um, when all is said and done, I think it's just like the last little bits of stimulus that you receive um, before you pass. And I'm passionate about those stimuli being really enjoyable for me. All mm-hmm. five of them, all five of my senses better be damn well engaged and happy in that moment. And I worry that an opioid will only serve to dull my senses and make them less engaged. Mm. Yeah. And it sounds like there's no, um, you're not like working off a model. Like you're trying to develop your own transition that is going to be different than uh, others. I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm right. Maybe I have the secret sauce here and I should publish a book about it. You don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows for sure. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of like the weirdness of it is we can talk about it, but you don't have the answers. Neither do I. And that's why it's such an interesting topic is mm-hmm. because it's the, probably one of the only topics that humans will never understand. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. And that's why going back to it all, we use religion to understand it because we don't know what else to turn to. Um, we use drugs to make it easy because we don't know what else to turn to. Um, and that's okay. Uh, I think that those are fine avenues for people to take to get this emotional solace if they need it. Um, I don't want that emotional solace in a way I want it to be raw and real because otherwise I don't think I'd be doing it justice. Mm. 
what and i just want to circle back to um your experience with with the dog on your chest and uh i know you said that there's a lot of emotions involved but like what did you uh, do, do you did you learn anything like when you think about that like was there a lesson that came came of that like how do you how do you kind of package that in your memory <laughs> it's hard I, part of me wants to say no there was no lesson i was so emotionally unstable in that moment that i learned nothing um that's one of my worries is that whenever this like big shit happens and my history of panic attacks and my confusion and all the stuff we've talked about, I do sometimes like almost have an emotional blackout in these moments. And it's something I have to learn to kind of suppress or control. Um, I think the only learning that I have is that it is important. One of the joys I have at that moment is that I know that the animal was as comfortable as it can possibly be. It was in its own home. It was on its bed. It slept in every night. It was with people that it loved. And it was being comforted and held from every angle. Mm-hmm. And I hope it could feel the, I hope there weren't negative emotions, but I hope it could feel the emotion in the room that the emotion was because of how special this animal was. Um, all of that was learning experience in the sense of how I want to die similar to how that animal died, mm-hmm. um, minus the pain aspect, ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, it died in a really nice way. Um, and I could only hope for such a beautiful death on my end. Mm. I guess um, I just like let's play you know wacky hypothetical situation. Um, if you were um, on your deathbed and you know you you could kind of have all the things that you had talked about wanting, except for one. Which like which which of those is least like is it what about like if you were to you know die in a natural de- die a natural death very clear minded but no family around and you were alone that's the one being that's alone one. yep that's the one because the family around me is very selfish mm-hmm. um, the other things are less selfish like it's not hurting anyone for me to die in nature it's not hurting anyone for me to die without opioids um, but it could potentially hurt people if I really do want them or quote unquote demand them be around me when I die. Um, mm. and I want it selfishly. I want it because I want to be with everyone I love to the last second of breath that I give. Um, but in reality, if, you know, if I, if I know I'm going to die tomorrow and for the comfort of others, maybe I say my goodbyes today and then go off and do my own thing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, so now we've established that, but I think that there's a, there's an idealization, idealization under happening. And I want to like unpack it a little bit. Uh, so what if you were to, um, you know, you weren't able to say the goodbyes and it was a sudden death, a very mm-hmm. sudden death. And like, it was unexpected and at a young age. Huge fear of mine. Um, huge fear of mine is not being able to say goodbye to someone I love or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's different though than having them by my side. But yes, uh, I can't imagine losing uh, my mother or my father or Kate or any of you without getting like a, a good amount of time to express my final feelings to you and get my final learnings from you, uh, before it's your time to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, sudden death is frightening to me. Um, I sometimes like dive way too deep on Reddit, like in a, <laughs> weird, on a weird Reddit thread, like things that you don't want to know and want to unlearn. And one of them is like 10 people a day die in their sleep young because of a brain aneurysm or something. And I'm like, dear God, that's the most frightening thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, yeah, it, it, it kind of changes with, like it changes based on the person. So for example, like, as we've kind of alluded to, my parents aren't in the best of health. And like, it's very clear that they're, they're kind of on the tail end of their lives. And like, every time I'm with them, I make sure to try to get learnings. I make sure to express them how I feel about them. 
and that's all well and great. So if I if one of them was to pass, I think it would be a significantly less powerful experience for me than if obviously Kate was to pass tonight mm-hmm. or tomorrow, or I was to pass tonight or tomorrow. Um, but as as I, I, sudden death can be scary, but I I have to kind of be a realist about it and recognize that more often than not, I feel like there are signs, and mm-hmm. being able to recognize those signs and appreciate them for what they are, and make sure to make the time worth it is just how you have to live. I kind of tying back all my feelings about that to begin with. I like deliberately choose not to think about it too much because Mm -hmm. it is discomforting. I similarly choose not to think of sudden death too much because that's discomforting. I'd rather Mm -hmm. focus on all the moments I have with these people and cherish them for what they are, as opposed to, I don't know, frame them in a way of, Oh God, what if this person dies tomorrow? Mm -hmm. That's fair. Um, I do, however, want to dig just one last level down. And so um, if you if you were traveling in the Philippines and you got hit and you got in a car accident and were on, was on life support, um, would you would you want like to be put in like a medically induced coma such that your family could come and visit you? but you are not cognizant and then you die or would you yeah if i wasn't cognizant then no if i was cognizant that is that is the imperative for you it's 100 percent imperative okay that's what i'm digging into but again it's this is very this is very selfish in a way like if they want to come see my vegetative body cool i don't give cool all the power to you like come see my Mm -hmm. vegetative body but i don't care that you're there because my senses are all shut down Mm -hmm. um this kind of manifests itself truly in my life because my mom in her like i don't know what you call it you probably know better than me it's like her dnr or whatever is her living will um in her living will one of the things that she has written down is that if she cannot recognize who i am that they should pull any plug or i or just euthanize her if the time comes Mm -hmm. um so i think that's obviously if she ended up being in a coma or if she had a stroke and couldn't recognize me after or if she had alzheimer's and couldn't recognize me um, I, I'm, I admire that in her because I admire that she is so confident about what's important in her life, which mm-hmm. is the people around her. I hope to be as equally confident that I can put something similar in my will that says, if I cannot recognize any of my loved ones, just kill me kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. don't let me try to come back from that. Like that's, that's the end for me, mm-hmm. for me, death, maybe then when I can't recognize the people I care about. That mm-hmm. is death. And then there's a secondary death, which is death of my body. But death of my mind has happened at that moment. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I think that's, uh, I think we've drilled down to the level that we need to go to like really like be able to confidently state what your, what your values surrounding your own death are. Fully agree. I, th- I think we've definitely covered them. There's the pain-free aspect, the natural aspect, the aspect of nature, and ideally the aspect of friends and family. And uh, I do want to die a death that is beautiful is the wrong word i think it's just more i want to die a death that is that's very closing for the life that i've led mm-hmm. all right and uh how do you finish that final prompt after i die i want this is the tricky one because i don't i love your podcast i don't like this prompt based on my <laughs> views of death i don't mm-hmm. think that there at least in my mind there isn't an after mm-hmm. i am there anything, isn't there is after you die there's nothing there is nothing as far as i'm concerned um, obviously other people I can talk about, I can say that I want all my offspring to be happy and well-fed and rich and loving life. But I feel like that's kind of losing the, the true point of this question, which is talking about 
maybe I'm not, maybe I'm alternating the question. <laughs> I, when, I, when I originally thought of this question, I thought of it as more of a religious, like heaven and hell, um, you know, reincarnation, all those types of beliefs, uh, of which I don't believe in any. I do believe that it's blackness is the wrong word, but it is nothing. There is nothing there. It is like you were never born. Mm-hmm. Um, I will talk about a little more tangibly though, in the sense of after death, because after death, the main thing that comes to mind is how I want my body to be laid in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that from recent, I don't know what else is out there right now, but from recent trends, I would like to donate everything I could possibly donate to science and or other people if applicable. Um, and then after that, whatever is left of me, I would like to be, this is another wrong word to use, but I would like it to be reincarnated in another living thing. Um, whether that is, it could be anything from grinding me up and feeding me to my dog to planting me under a tree in the yard to mixing me in the foundation of a house, something that has some kind of recycled aspect to it. Um, anything like that would be sufficient for me. The trend right now apparently is like making a, putting me in soil and planting a tree or something like that. I've seen like these little tree pods where like mm-hmm. the image that they show is like a little fetus under the tree that's growing above it. And it's really, you know, it's just kind of like a new life is being born into this tree. Like, that's cool. Maybe in some religion, I will be able to see the world through the leaves of the trees and all I'll be happy forever in this little beautiful garden watching over my children play. Um, something like that. Um, but anything that involves me being recycled is good with me. Um, specific to the tree, like, is there like, do you even know like, what kind of tree? I don't care. It could be a, it could be a bush. It could be a tree. Um, because in, let's say it's a bush and let's say it's a bush. That's a, I'm not sure of the right term. The bush that dies every year in the winter and then comes back. An annual? Yeah, an annual. Oh, let's say it's a perennial. Let's say it's like mm-hmm. a, a flower pot where these mm-hmm. little daisies die in the, in the winter and they don't come back. That's cool because those daisies are now, I, I was reincarnated into the daisies and the daisies were reincarnated back to the soil. And mm-hmm. then that's going to be used to create a new plant. Mm-hmm. So like, as long as I'm in some matter that will continue to be recycled, I consider myself well-rested. Mm. okay i like this idea of recycling and almost like uh utility after death um i think that's neat um i do think the um you like i i have been very careful about these prompts in terms of i like them as a rorschach test and i think that your interpretation of the prompts is very interesting because it is uh on a very fundamental level a very um ego ego slash Adam based approach to the prompt because um, from what you've described is it's all tied to your experience of that, of what can come after you die uh, versus um, after I die, I want the, uh, the white tailed deer population to increase tenfold. If we wanted to go down that Avenue, I could write you a novel of what I want to happen after I die. No, I want world peace. I want. Then let's talk about it because that's that's the, that is the, uh, the a very legitimate response to the prompt. But here's the problem I have with that is that there is no way the things that I could say about that are restrictive to after I die. They definitely all pertain to before I die as well. Why is that? So if you want the white-tailed deer population to flourish, I assume you want that now. Why would you wait seventy years until you pass? Because I, I want that to happen in a thousand years because I want the 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 population to to bloom slowly so that there's no not like fewer bottlenecks that occur you you're getting very scientist on me and that's fine. <laughs> um, 
Like, the, like there are certain things that need to happen slowly over the course of thousands or tens of thousands of years. And that's, that's like that, that's the, like, what, what like, how do you answer this prompt about in, in terms of talking about things that are going to occur in 10,000 years? I would want <laughs> after I die in, in that case, after I die, I want a more mutually beneficial relationship between humans and animals on this planet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now the relationship is very skewed towards humans and I am the ultimate guilty party of that considering I am essentially a carnivore in my diet. Um, <laughs> so there's that aspect of it. Um, I think that I want, after I die, I want people not only to be more in tune with animals and nature, but I do truly hope that people evolve in a way that's different than the way they've been evolving. Um, I think that we're evolving actually in a very strange way that's probably not good for human population. Uh, this will maybe hit home with you, but I really believe that modern medicine has set us back uh, because we're curing people that probably shouldn't be cured and people that probably should die out in order to make our population stronger. Um, an example of this, and it's painful for me to say, um, cancer is a good example of this. If we, and this is the, the weirdest philosophical view, philosophical view I've ever had, but it's one that I relatively hold strongly to, theoretically, if we allowed people with cancer to die and didn't treat them, cancer would eventually be eradicated from the human population because humans would, the humans that would procreate and live would be the ones who weren't getting cancer. And you can kind of say that for pretty much any disease that impacts humans. It goes against a lot of what modern medicine teaches. And obviously, this is the Louis C.K. thing. Mm -hmm. Of course, we should cure people (laughs) with cancer. Of course, it makes sense. But at the same time, if we didn't, maybe cancer goes away. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this is true with pretty much any modern disease that we've been combating. I think it's true with, you know, throwing money at people who are obese um, or people who maybe have Uh, mental or physical handicaps that make them unable to live without medical care, things like that. And in my life, that's why I say it's after I die, because in my lifetime, I don't want to see that happen because that's painful for me to think about. But after I die, when I'm no longer thinking, um, I think it's maybe the best place for humans to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just strictly, you know, like I said, uh, that there are certain things like that require time and I want the deer to flourish over a long period of time because I don't want that bottleneck. Like us humans, as a result of the medical apparatus, um, we have exploded in our population and uh, I think to a great detriment um, because of these like huge surges in population are in, in the broad scope of we've been homo sapiens sapiens for like 10,000, like a hundred thousand years. Um, the, the bloom that has happened is like an algae bloom and there's a lot that goes along with that. Um, and so I understand the sentiment and, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think it's very interesting that you're self-aware enough to say like, I want that to happen after I die. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit too, if I, if I live to see the world turn into that, man, I'm going to see a lot of shit. So mm-hmm. to, for us to get there, so many things have to happen first that I don't think it's possible to happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to get there, I don't even know what have to happen. It's hard to even conceptualize. I don't understand what world we'd be in for that to be a decision made by international government. It's hard to imagine a uh, a circumstance in that in which that would happen without a uh apocalypse um apocalyptic sort of like total destruction of civilization as we understand it. Sure. Yeah, like let's say let's say you know half the world's population was immediately killed by nuclear war 
maybe after that, like it, the, the leaders of the remaining world take time to reassess what it means to be human and what it means to live in a society and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe then they'll make a decision that that's, that, that, that is that profound. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is hard to think about, especially because my mother is a cancer survivor and I have no doubt that cancer will take one or more of the people that I love. Um, so it's hard to like think of it in that capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I, I think that we have been almost devolving over the past couple hundred of years because we are, you know, any race wouldn't allow itself to get more obese. Those people would die. We have found a way to allow obese people to thrive, which to me is counterproductive to how a species should live as one example. Mm-hmm. Um, do you... Do you have anything else on that list of after I die? The more practical stuff, um, any living family, I want to make sure I leave them with a nest egg that they can do the things that I never could or things that I've left on my bucket list for others to complete for me, um, whether it's travel or homes or general life experiences. Um, After I die, I want some kind of, I want to be remembered as long as possible. Um, This is something I grapple with a lot. Um, I think that there's the death of the person and then there's the death of their memory. Mm -hmm. Um, As an example, someone like Michael Jordan will never die. Uh, Someone like Donald Trump will never die because there will be people mentioning their names realistically as long as people are on this earth and speaking in coherent languages to one another. There will be conversations about individuals like that going on. Um, I am not in that boat. Um, I am in the boat where I will probably be lost a couple of generations after I die and no one will remember who I am. Uh, so to maximize that is important. Obviously that contradicts a lot of what I said earlier about having a kid. Um, <laughs> obviously step one of me being remembered is aside from being famous is to having a child. Um, at least that will buy me another, who knows, another lifespan of, of mentions, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, this is like kind of getting dark about it, but I think a lot of, a lot of what we see in terms of people shooting up stuff and killing themselves and blowing things up is because they want to be remembered and they worry of how insignificant they really are. And that's their last ditch effort to get their name out there Mm -hmm. um, because they don't know how else to do it. They've tried, you know, they've tried going on Instagram, posting photos, they've tried using inflammatory language, they've tried it all and nothing else works. So they figure, Hey, I'm going to go blow up a school because I know at least my name will be in the press for a month. And maybe people will talk about me in a history class some years down the line when they talk about the shooting epidemic that happened in America in the, 20, in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the darker way of looking at it. Um, I obviously <laughs> would never go down that path. I'm not desperate enough to do so. And I don't think that that's the right way to be remembered. But I think there's something to be said about being remembered after you die in the positive light. And obviously, some people think there's something to be said about that in the negative light as well. Mm-hmm you know how you'd want your story to continue in those generations after you? I'd want people to, this is part of me wanting property. I'd want people to keep experiencing things that I obtained on my own will. So many generations down the line, they'll still be going to the house that Arazi built or something Mm -hmm. like that. And that will be there and it will be a standing structure that will have my impact on it. It'll have my architectural designs. It'll have my property designs. It'll have my impact on the land that people can enjoy long after I'm gone. 
but it could also be charitable. Um, as I've talked about, I'm obsessed with dogs and I do imagine leaving any expendable income that I have if I don't have children um, to dogs or things that are pro-dog in any way. Um, one of my, I wouldn't call it expatriatism, but like in patriotism is like move to Kansas or some really cheap state, purchase a couple acres and just have all the dogs. And <laughs> they can all run around and be happy and I will take dogs from everywhere across the world and make them happy. Um, so some combination of those would be my, my after I die legacy that I want to leave. Um, unless I become the best baker in the world and I have like <laughs> a pie named after me that's made for generations on end, like the mm -hmm. Adam pie that's filled with, I don't know, pineapple and weed or something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with both of these in terms of fame and the, the, the physical place that you described, there's a, there's an aspect of you, of you living on in terms of the name. Uh, but how important is that, that your, that you Adam are tied to it versus how important is it that the, in the, the, the place, the, the land that you, you put your love into exists and continues to give love to people? Like The, the latter. Um, yeah, it's, my legacy doesn't have to be that people know who Adam Marazzi is. My legacy can be that they are experiencing things that I help create mm -hmm. or experiencing things that I wanted them to experience by putting them in place so that they would last after I died. Mm. Good stuff. And so... Uh... We've been talking for almost like two hours, going on three, right? Something like that. I'm proud about it. I'm I'm yeah, I told you, I can, uh, I can get people talking. That's my <laughs> job as a psychiatrist. <laughs> You're truly going to be fantastic at it. For no, this is, I, know, I know that you have many reasons for doing this podcast, and I hope that one of them is practice because it is. it is certainly good practice. A lot of good practice. And so um, I... Uh, I want to thank you, and I want to give you the floor, uh, the last few minutes, to address the audience directly, whether it is, um, you know, somebody that is on your property listening to the story of the guy, you know, listening to the, the literal words from the guy who made the place, or the um, maybe it's you in a decade after the death of one or both of your parents, or uh, maybe it's just somebody who identifies a lot with your worldview and uh, wants to hear some uh, words of wisdom from the man himself. I encourage anyone listening to have conversations like this, whether it be with Eugene, someone like Eugene, or anyone at all. Um, I think it is important to stop talking about work and stop talking about sports and stop talking about celebrities and talk about yourself and your goals, your desires in a way that is very different from having beers with a friend saying like, hey, like I wanna make hundred grand next year. I think that the conversation that the conversations that people need to have to be healthy are much deeper than that. Um, it's something that I will continue to work on. And I hope that if I'm listening to this in the future, I have worked on tremendously is to be more open and honest with people and have great conversations with them. Um, it's something that I value about a lot of cultures that are not American. I feel like the American culture is not one of great conversation. When you think of uh, a person who I've known in my life who was Turkish, who his idea of a night was drinking tea and talking for three hours, when my idea was a night of a night was doing drugs and going to dance. Um, I want people to to talk more and not just talk more, but talk more meaningfully. Um, I don't want to go to a bar and talk to someone about um, hockey for three hours. I feel like that's a much less meaningful conversation than the one that Eugene and I just had. Um, I also encourage people to kind of break the mold a bit, um, get a little uncomfortable, take a couple risks. Uh, 
even if there's a chance that something bad might happen, it's probably worth it because even if that bad thing does happen, you learn and you go on. So for me, if, if I'm going to take a risk by driving in a monsoon in the Philippines, sure, there's a 0.1% chance that I die, but that other chance is a memorable experience that I learned something from and gain insight for and can share with others and develop my story of Adam and the life that I lived. Um, that's all I got. Uh, I want to thank you, Gene, for leading a, a wonderful podcast and being a wonderful human. Um, and hopefully I see you on the other side. Thank you very much, Adam. This has been Adam Razi on Death.